Hello and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast that revolves around the seismic shifts in technology, culture, and the digital age. You're listening to episode number 10.8. I'm your host, Joe Darnell, and with me is Mr. Joshua Pfeiffer. How are you doing again? Hey, man, doing well. I, uh, I don't know if you saw my my post, but I uh, found a new Indian restaurant today, so my day was very good. Yes, I imagine that would make you a happy camper. Oh, you didn't need the bourbon for tonight's show. Curry is my favorite thing, and it's the whole restaurant is full of different curries. So really, completely unrelated to this podcast, but it makes me happy. I wish I had some curry tonight because it would help clear my throat. You know, <laughs> it's pretty hard to clear my throat around nine p.m. at night when I'm trying to record the show. I need something like that. that. Is this going to be another running gag or something of the show? I sure hope not. This was happening last week. <laughs> I love food and I love tech and alcohol. Those are my things. You have your curry and I have my bourbon. So we're good. <laughs> With this is Mr. Caleb Wojcik. It's Wojcik, right? Correct. That is how you say it. Yeah. You, you nailed it, actually. I do my best. I listened to your show. <laughs> I came prepared. Now, uh, the way I know you is from the internet. You have a couple of podcasts, but first and foremost, you seem to be an extraordinary independent video professional. I like what you have going on at DIY Video Guy, as well as Caleb Wojcik Films. You have some great demo videos. It's a pleasure to get to know you. Well, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, video stuff is kind of what I breathe day to day now, and it hasn't always been that way, but since I've switched over to that, I really feel like I've hit my stride lately. So excited to be on the show. What were you doing before video? How far back you want me to go? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, keep it within 2012. Okay. So in 2011, like the end of 2011, I left a job at Boeing and I worked in finance there, completely unrelated to online business at all. I'm sure you were building some very important things for them, and video work was more attractive. Yeah, I was building spreadsheets, mainly. Fun. And I went from spreadsheets to, I started blogging about personal finance in 2011. I had finished my MBA, and I got connected with Corbett Barr, who was running a site called Think Traffic. From there, I worked with him full-time, and we built this site called Fizzle with our third person, Chase Reeves, where we taught online business and entrepreneurship and help people turn their websites into things they could actually live off of. So I worked there for about three years. And then just under a year ago, I left that to do video production full time. I like their website. They still have the podcast and blog going on today, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Every week. It's one of the more interesting websites I come across every now and then. I'm like, oh, I actually want to stop and read this. It seems like mo way too many websites are looking more generic and template-y. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Chase does a good job with the design over there. But you also started a web show, or sorry, not a web show, a podcast of your own back in 2012, right? Or was that in cahoots with Fizzle? No, it was separate. You had the Cubicle Renegade. So I, run, I ran a site called Pocket Changed, and that was my personal finance site that I transitioned into just learning about entrepreneurship and kind of documenting my journey towards it. And I had a podcast that I did about... I think I did 24 episodes uh, over a year or so mm -hmm. where I was just interviewing entrepreneurs and other people that had left day jobs to go do their own thing. And while you were becoming an entrepreneur and you were thinking through technology and what you wanted to use, did you wind up a Mac or a PC guy? Uh, I switched to Mac right after I started blogging. I was PC growing up. I used to build computers. 
back in middle and high school, and I eventually switched over to Mac just mm-hmm. so I could focus on creating things and less on tinkering with the computer instead. That's what I notice in general is that at some point, if you are a dedicated member of the PC community, then you'll find a way to become a professional creative and use those tools. They're well-respected by many small studios and the like. But then there's many like you, I know, over the years that made a switch because as a creative, they, they felt like the Mac was more conducive to their field of work. And I think the timing when I switched was right when Windows 7 was about to come out. <laughs> Good timing. Like I would have rather ran XP still. That's kind of how I felt. I would have rather ran in the other direction <laughs> just yeah. as much yeah. as I could. I was using Macs for creative work all the way back to, I think, the first or second generation of the original iMac in 1999, 2000. And that was when I started using video editors myself. I, my early videos were in iMovie when I was a teenager and doing things on the side, which we'll get to in a few minutes. What are some of the things that you have on your portfolio? It's It seems like you've really racked up some good work in over the years. Yeah, so most of my work revolves around what I call talking head videos, where there's someone on the screen either talking directly to the camera, or it's more of an interview style where they're looking off camera, or they're having an actual conversation with someone. And I also do some live event stuff as well. So the first few videos that I made that I actually got paid to make were wedding videos, uh, conference talks, and a book trailer for, for Pat Flynn of Smart Passive Income. And then I transitioned at Fizzle to being kind of the video person there. We all shot our own stuff, but I started ending up editing a lot of it. And so it was a lot of course videos, three camera uh, interviews where two people would sit and have a conversation for 45 minutes or an hour, kind of like we're doing now, but in person. And those were the kinds of things I got started doing. And now I'm doing bigger projects where I'm traveling internationally to do documentary style stuff on um, charity work or uh, travel photography course that someone's putting together. And uh, I've shot interviews with like Chris Gillibo and other bigger name people that I've been uh, blessed to work with. So I've really just used my connections I made over the past three or four years to reach out to people and say, hey, what video projects do you have in mind? I'd love to help you with those. A few years back, I had the opportunity to work on the field for a an archaeological dig for a documentary, but it was in the Middle East, so I bowed out of that project. <laughs> Though I would have liked to have seen the country. I just, uh, yeah, it looked like it was going to be for six months to a year, and it was going to be up in the mountains and all over the country. And while we were working on the budgets and the production, one thing after the next just uh, looked worse and worse. So I bowed out of that as quickly as I could. That sounds terrible. I mean... It would be like 160 degrees or something. (laughs) Even hotter than it is in Georgia, I tell you what. Yes, I know. Anything hotter than Georgia, forget about it. Now, I haven't been doing video now for three or four years, but I did a great number of the talking lecture videos. How many times must you have watched a single lecture to get it edited properly? Um, It really depends on how prepared the person is, whether or not they scripted it or they're just going from an outline or they're just making it up or if we actually use a teleprompter. But uh, luckily I do have one person that works with me full time. He's my brother-in-law, Tim. And right now one of his, <laughs> one of his roles is going through that first cut of some of those videos. So it can be a decent amount of work to find the good takes. But 
we have a few tricks that we use while we're recording to help our future self edit it faster. We make audio sounds that signal when it's a good take versus a bad take, and we do different things. We have a, a few tricks that we use that help save time later whenever possible. Yeah. Yeah. See, normally I didn't have the opportunity because I, well, I would take notes. I would take notes whenever I could. But most of our video lectures were recorded with two or three cameras on location at a seminar. And then we would be editing them. And after the fact, the lecturer would tell us, here's my PowerPoints. And they were absolutely disgusting. <laughs> it was the it was the stark white text on a, a blue screen of death background. Mm -hmm. Then it would be in four by three, but we were using HD video. So we would have to mm -hmm. change the aspect ratios. Before you knew it, the client, you know, bless his heart, he would ask us to make the graphics prettier because he once saw this other guy's presentation that was given on a Mac and he saw something called Keynote and it was amazing. So we'd have to do a lot of graphics over the long haul and hear a lecture probably uh, 12 or 15 times. Oh, geez. Yeah, I try to try to not have to recreate things as much as possible. So if there's things are referencing like slides, it's better if you know that they're going to be good to start with instead of having to recreate them for the video and the formatting and making sure you have the fonts so you can export it properly and all those little things that really make a difference. Now, speaking of those little things that make a lot of difference in your line of work, it's creative, but it's also technical because of all of the technology around you. Could you imagine yourself doing much of any of your work without at least a half a dozen gadgets and gear? I mean, you have to have your cameras you got to think about their batteries and your power cords. You have to think about the boom arms and the boom mounts, the, the, the microphones and the lapel mics and on and on it goes. There are so many different components and we wind up with these long checklists as the video crew. <laughs> and how, do you, how do you manage to keep up with all the technical bits going into the video project? Well, I guess that's what people are paying me for, that I do show up with all the right stuff and I know how to set it up and I have studied all the right settings and everything's properly ready to go so that when they step in, they just have to record the video. So I've spent multiple years learning as much as I could about this kind of stuff. I contemplated going to film school. I toured at USC and I was gonna maybe go there, but I decided to just kind of figure stuff out on my own. And so it's been a lot of a lot of tutorials on lynda.com or YouTube and Vimeo, going to in-person workshops, mm -hmm. just getting cameras and testing things out on my own, and just continually learning as much as I can about video production. And so how do I deal with making sure that I don't miss anything on a specific shoot? We we use checklists for packing and we double check them. We When we get back from a shoot, it's very important to unpack and recharge everything and empty the cards and double back them up and format them and put them away so that when we finish a shoot, everything's pretty much ready to go if we needed to pack and leave immediately after that. And so that's just come from uh, having to do a bunch of shoots and fly to other places and come back and then have to produce stuff internally for DIY video guy that I want to put out. And then the next day I go to another shoot. So it's just come from doing it over and over and over again that we've had to put in checklists and you know processes to make sure that when we finish a shoot and we come home we don't just dump everything and then wait for the next one back in my day we were still using mini dv tapes and to import an hour's worth of video footage took about an hour 
And uh, when you had a tight, you know, schedule to make two new YouTube videos from week to week, that was a very unpleasant experience. It was one of the reasons I ultimately felt led to get away from video work because there were so many little things to think about, little details. You have more gear to think about. You have to be mining all of the specifications on your videos so that you get the right kind of footage the way you want it shot in the first place. Even if just the slightest thing in your technical work goes wrong, it can affect so much of what you do. I've seen mistakes happen to other video crews and just nightmares produced. Um, For one example, someone very close to me, a relative who was in video production at the time, wanted to shoot my wedding video. And I was really honored to, to, you know, have him volunteer and do that kind of work for me. And so he provided his own video equipment, having his own crew. He was there the day for our wedding and he shot the video. Then after the honeymoon, I get all the videotapes and I'm checking them out. And the first half of all of his footage didn't have any audio. And no one really knows why. I asked him about it and he said he he had no idea that he wasn't getting the audio in the first place or that it started recording the audio when it did. I asked him, how could you let that happen to my wedding? And he was like, I'm sorry. I was watching the wedding. I was really into it. I wasn't thinking about what the camera was doing. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the hardest parts when you're doing something that's not staged. So not a talking head video. If you're doing documentary style stuff or you're doing a live event you can't really experience it like you would if you were there. You can't you can't take breaks to go eat with other people or socialize or grab a drink or even sit where people are sitting. And you have to be thinking about the end product when you're doing video. You have to think about what's the story I'm going to be telling, what's the audio I'm going to be wanting. And it makes you observe life in general just in a completely different way. Yes. Photography does in one way and video does in another. Absolutely. With experience, you really change your your perspective on day-to-day things, especially with video, because there is that added layer of complexity that you're not just shooting video, you're also shooting audio, and you're shooting both of them multiple seconds at a time for minutes on end. Just That's a very different sort of work than what a photographer is, is given. So something I noticed in one of your videos is you were talking about the importance of online video, and this fascinates me. A few years ago, it occurred to me, the internet is going to mostly be video content at some point. Th- those are the things that are, people are going to be attracted to over and over again. In your line of work, it's very important that people care about video as much as they do, but how do you see video content influencing the future of the internet? That's a that's a big question, but I I do agree with what you're saying that trend or no trend, I think that video is one of the most powerful ways to interact with somebody, whether that's a brand interacting with somebody or one on one, a person talking to another person. Unless you're in the physical space with them, I think video is the best way to portray whatever it is you're trying to share with somebody because. It hits on more than one sense, which very few things do. If you're reading something, you might your your mind can easily wander. I know I have to go back pages on books that I'm reading because my mind will go and wander. Audio, someone's typically doing something else when they're listening to audio. I'm assuming most people aren't just sitting in their living room right now listening to this conversation, maybe with a group of people 
like people used to listen to the radio back in the in the 40s or 50s you're on a treadmill you're doing dishes you're driving to work whatever you're doing you're doing something else when you watch a video you're watching and listening and you can't really do something else if you are doing something else then you're not paying attention and they call this uh, the second screen when you're someone's watching tv and they have their phone and they're not really watching tv they're focused on their phone so if you're trying to share information or knowledge with someone if you're trying to entertain someone if you're trying to share a message about your company or your brand or the news video is just the best way to do that and it's the only way you know you have 100 percent of someone's attention while they're consuming it and that's a very good point something you said a second ago is how people are interacting with you is through the video content and i don't often think of it in terms as interactive but that's very true and we see that more and more with what the internet enables and I think the reason that I don't think of it as interactive is just how we grew up with regular television. And I remember in those days, there was no form of interaction with anything that you saw on the TV. That was what I grew to expect. And it was so habit forming that you just got used to the fact that everything was very passive. You were fed something from the box. Most people over the age of 30 would think of video in that way, that would re that regard. They don't understand or appreciate yet just why YouTube is so influential. Like you were saying with radio, you don't have to stop and listen to this podcast and dedicate your full attention to it. You know, oftentimes I'll be mowing the grass or I'll be, yeah, running on the treadmill while I listen to a podcast. But if I stop to, you know, observe a video, I'm pretty much not doing anything else. It engages all of your attention. So Caleb, Returning to the behind the scenes stuff and making video that is that powerful and that meaningful is not easy. And that's why we need professionals to do it. You notice that as the tools become more readily available, that have more and more features, are more and more sophisticated, all the more powerful and all the more accessible, it seems like fewer and fewer people are willing to actually give them a try. When desktop publishing was young and interesting on a computer in the 80s and 90s, it seemed like it was the, the really cool thing to do with your computer. But it was also very hard. All things considered, text-based editors and um, the like were just still rather cantankerous to use. Microsoft Word was never a pleasant experience. You used Microsoft Word because what it afforded you, the power it enabled you, so you would use it to get things done. But as years go by, all the writing tools became so much better. It was so much easier to use them. And it's gotten to the point that now not, most people rather despise what they have going for them. And they're turned off by word processors in general. So what do you see are uh, so like the influences that, that are affecting video production this way? I kind of think that as video editing and recording tools become more and more readily available to people, they're not using them as often as I would have thought. Just because you have it doesn't mean you will because you realize there's a lot going into it. Yeah, I think there's a couple different kinds of video production that people can go into. I think there's the highly produced, highly planned, expensive camera equipment, audio, lights, knowing exactly what you're doing, planning out the script or whatever it is you want to record. Maybe you have shot lists or you storyboard the entire thing. And that's what um, I'm ending up doing for clients as well as what 
bigger video production houses do for ads or television or movies. And then there's this trend now to, because you have a video camera in your pocket all the time with, with your phone, is these, these home video type of quality that you would maybe have your dad have the camcorder on his shoulder recording everything, and then you guys would have to watch an hour and a half long tape of you at the park or someone's vacation. Now people can share it in smaller bite sizes on Facebook, on Instagram, on Snapchat, on Vine, on whatever platform they want to share these videos on. So I think that people are thinking about video in different ways. There's new there's new genres of video. There's vlogs where people will just document what they're doing throughout the whole day. They'll turn the camera towards themselves and like talk to it and do selfie video style. There's there's Vine and the comedy on there. There's so many different kinds of genres now, and the bar's been lowered for what someone needs to get into it. But I think the bar is still high for for quality and for making a name for yourself or getting paid to make videos if that's what your goal is. I think that still takes a lot of knowledge and training as right. well as resources right. and 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 worth work ethic. Speaking of the work ethic and the training and some of those skills you got to pick up, what all goes into your style of video production? Well, I think that pre-production is what people don't really expect. It's figuring out what the point of the video is, what the script is, if there's calls to actions, what the overall arc of it is going to be, then what the feel of the video needs to be. Should it be you talking to the camera? Should you not be talking to the camera? Maybe you're talking over other B-roll footage that you're going to be showing. And so there's a lot that goes into a video before I ever hit record, whether that's for my stuff or for someone else's stuff. Very, very rarely do I record something and then figure out what it's going to be later. The more pre-production you do and planning out your videos, the better they're going to end up being and the faster you're going to be able to make them. So that's that's a big piece of it. And then after you record the video, there's a lot of work to get it to be clean, look really good, and not have any dead time in there where someone that's watching the video will get bored and click away. So trying to keep the video as engaged as possible and looking as good and sounding as good as possible is our goal after we record it. So there's so many different steps in there. And I think that one of the biggest problems for someone like me that gets paid to make videos for people is that people just think about the recording piece and then you're basically done. Yes. And they don't think about the whole the whole process. And so that's that's on me to educate people on how they can benefit from working with someone that makes videos for a living and knows the whole process that can help hold their hand through through it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't think that people can appreciate what they're what they're asking for until they either witness another production or you you explain it to them like you do, Caleb. Because there, there is all that planning ahead of time. What would you, where would you like the camera pointing and things like that? I, I think, I think you're on the right track that uh, it incorporates so many layers. It's more than the video shooting and the editing. It's also the sharing and, and getting it to the right audience and giving the audience what they kind of need and want at the same time with the message of the person who commissioned the video. I, it's it's sort of like ghostwriting. 
I have some friends that are ghostwriters and copywriters and to hear them do their work, they, they, they're able to be like master of the, of the text that they're writing for some other author or speaker. And usually their, their client doesn't have to know so much about what's going on behind the scenes while the person is thinking about how, how should I organize this body of text? There, there's a lot that they can figure out for themselves as, as professionals and, and using their own imagination and creativity and experience to, to hone what they have to write. And I think that that's what people are kind of expecting that when they, they commission a video project, they don't realize just how much goes into it. And some days of the week, you, you see the latest headlines about what JJ Abrams did or something like that. You hear what they're doing in, in Hollywood and it sounds really superficial. Like a director really doesn't do much except shout out people and put on smiles and wing it on the set and say, you know, they're just going for what feels right today and expects the crew to do all the work. No, <laughs> they're doing a whole lot more than you can possibly imagine. They just may or may not turn out very good results from time to time on their motion pictures that you may or may not appreciate. But uh, my daughter is saying that she wants to go into acting and videos. She's only six years old and I don't know how to break it to her that it's, it's actually hard work. So something that you have been doing more lately with your podcast, the DIY Video Guy podcast, is you've been f- focusing on the interests of vloggers and YouTubers and helping them produce better videos as well. So what does it take for those kind of people to produce better videos for themselves? And you're doing this behind the camera and in front of the camera. You're trying to produce better videos. How do you feel that it's coming along while making your own productions? Well, I think the biggest thing that people need is whatever they're going to do on video has to be actually interesting. And I, for the longest time, thought that like the production quality was the most important piece. But I, I think it's equal with having something interesting happening. And whether that's what you're talking about or that you're just an interesting person, I think that's the most important piece along with production quality that rises you to the top of YouTube or whatever platform it is you're trying to trying to build. Because I was just recently at VidCon, uh, which is a conference that a lot of YouTube and Vine personalities go to. On a lot of the panels there, I was looking at the people that have grown big channels, and they're just interesting people, and they picked an interesting topic that they wanted to talk about, or they were just funny or really good at the craft of the videos and very, very committed. And so it wasn't necessarily that they had amazing cameras or the budget to have a crew come and help them film. They just kept showing up and being interesting and showing their best work and maybe not publishing some of their videos they made that weren't as good. I think it really just comes down to continuing to show up and continually pushing yourself to get better at the technical pieces and making your videos better over time. But if you just try to make one really, really good video and put it out there, it's not going to build the audience that that you might want. It's about continually making videos and iterating on them and and making new versions of yourself and your style as you grow year to year. And like that, how does it parallel for talking head videos? What does it take to actually make an enjoyable video worth watching that's a talking head? I mean, it's not exactly what you come to expect on YouTube, but still many of these videos are actually content that it is 
intended for the internet. So how do you make one of those enjoyable and do your best to make a presentation that's worth the while of the viewers? Well, I think one thing you need to do is you need to look at people that do it well and study other talking head videos that you stay engaged with and find out what points in the video you start to get bored or you start to think about something else you want to do instead. This is kind of how a big chunk of YouTube got really popular. Some of the biggest subscriber counts on YouTube, some of the biggest channels were vloggers early on, people like iJustine or Ray William Johnson and just a bunch of the early vloggers on YouTube. You can go and watch their videos and see how quick the cuts are, how they interject jokes throughout and how they're very topical and maybe they use current events to make people more willing to watch those videos. So there's all these little strategies that people that make these kind of videos have that you can bring to maybe your less vlog style videos, maybe they're a sales video or even an interview style like we're doing now to to make them more interesting. So you kind of have to study what people are doing well and take back to your videos anything that you've learned from that. So who are some of the inspirations for you in in your video line of work? For the more cinematic stuff that I do, I really look up to uh, directors like David Fincher and Christopher Nolan. Mm. And someone that's on a, a lower scale than that is Ryan Connolly at Film Riot has done an amazing job teaching film production, video production to people on on their YouTube channel. And so for my DIY video guy stuff, I try to be as big of a service as he was to his audience mm. as as I can be going behind the scenes whenever I'm doing shoots and try to teach as much as I can about what I'm doing for my client work, finding things that I wish I would have known when I was getting started or stuff that I just learned in real time and sharing that with people and just trying to give back as much as I can and build this YouTube channel and this website and audience into what I wish would have existed for me as an alternative to going to film school or going through all the video learning that I went through online. I think that Ryan over at the Film Riot show has been a huge influence on YouTubers. His production standards are great. I really like how he's teaching you something, but like you said a moment ago, He's seeking to make something very enjoyable along the way, and he's refined his craft. He has something that feels uh, like a vlog at times, but also like a how-to video and also a full-on narrative, a a mixture of the genres, something that even feels almost Vine-like at times, all packed into one video or from one video to the next. And uh, he'd be a great example for anyone who is interested in this sort of thing. Surely you've already found him, but if you haven't found him, I'll put a link to his channel in the show notes. So Caleb, now we're going to get into your workflow a little bit more now. What do you use to make a video? So so many things. <laughs> yeah, you could take that in any direction you like. Let's see. The main things that I use are, I used to use Canon DSLRs with uh, detachable lenses. Um, I used to use a 60D at first. Then I got a 5D Mark III. And now I have a C100 Mark II, which is uh, a dedicated video camera. But using DSLRs, I think, is a great way to get started. You can get some really high-quality footage through those. Then for microphones, I have an array of them. I have lavaliers. I have podcasting microphones that I use for this kind of work. 
I have shotgun mics. I have a bunch of different stuff. Um, and then for lighting, I started with a cheap three-point lighting set from Amazon. And then I've upgraded and I have some LED lights I use sometimes. I have some Kino Flow lights that are used on television and Hollywood sets that I use sometimes. So it's it's less to me about what I use. I always get those questions about what camera I use and everything. And I always love to know what camera other people are using. <laughs> but it's really come down to once you get to a certain level of making whatever you're able to make at the quality you want it to be, that stuff kind of switches off. And you're like, oh, no, now I have to worry about how good my videos are and what I'm putting out and what I'm building over the long term. And so I think that getting too caught up on the tools is not what I want people to do. What I really want people to do is to get started with their phones and maybe a couple accessories to make it sound better or to stabilize it on a tripod. But I, I always do get the the kind of tools and devices uh, questions as far as software and computer-based things. Uh, I use Adobe Premiere Pro to edit. I used to use Final Cut Pro 10. Uh, I use ScreenFlow from time to time if I'm recording a computer screen or a uh, like an iPhone screen. I'll use it for that. Mm -hmm. Those are the main tools that I'm using to make my videos. Have you dabbled with Adobe After Effects and Motion? A little bit, yeah. I have taken templates that I'll use for lower thirds or other kind of effects. And mm. I can do a little bit in there, but it's still daunting uh, for me to to jump into After Effects and do too much. So I do as much as I can in Premiere when possible. Right. I understand. Your videos have a good bit of polish to them on YouTube. And I've noticed your lower thirds. And are you using a green screen for any of them? No, I don't use a... I have a paper backdrop where I have a gray paper backdrop, a blue one, and then a green one. And I haven't actually used the green one once on, on my videos. So so my backgrounds are just blurred out because of the lens I'm using and the settings I'm using. I have some some picture frames on one of the walls of my garage studio that I record in. Gotcha. Okay. Typically looks blurred out enough where it, it can seem green screen, but I haven't shot a single green screen video that I've ever published before. Gotcha. I've used a variety of the blue and the green screens. It's not always easy to tell, but your your edits are good. Your effects are good. Now, how do you, how did you refine your process? I don't see any of the mistakes you've made over the years. You say you want people to just jump in. You you unpublish those. <laughs> <laughs> you you hide those. I made. Let's see. In high school, I made a video in in a film class that I don't even have a copy of anymore. In college, I made a random video in one of my classes. And then when I was talking about personal finance and I first got a DSLR, I made a couple videos back then that are just, they're just not good. The lighting's bad. The framing's bad. I'm awful on camera. It's not interesting. And I just had to make videos. That's the only thing that can encourage you to make them better is to keep hitting record, looking at the footage on a computer, editing it, trying to publish it, maybe deciding not to publish it, and then go do another one. I don't know if I've made a thousand videos yet, but I got to be getting close to a thousand because I've made hundreds in just the past year. So 
you just have to keep making videos and you learn something every time and maybe you make a note of it so that the next time you don't have that happen again and you just go from there. Do you still feel now this time that you're going to be eventually scrapping the work you do now for something you you are going to respect more in the future? I think you do reach a baseline where you're okay with that being your starting point. Okay, uh, good. I know some people, maybe one of their first couple of YouTube videos was really popular. And so you go way back in the archives and you can see how poorly lit they were the audio is awful and they're too long and rambly, but people leave them up there because it's great to show your audience where you started from. I love that people keep those those videos up. And most of my old ones are still up somewhere if they still make sense for me to have them out. My personal finance couple videos I made, I don't even run that site anymore. They weren't getting traffic and views, so there's not really a reason for me to have them there. But I think it's great for people to show where they started and uh, let their audience see that not everyone starts with the nice equipment or being able to shoot with a video company. They started with their webcam or their phone, just mm -hmm. making an interesting video, and that's how they got jump-started. So the way you've been describing that you make videos to learn how to make videos, is that how you make time to learn something new and pick up new tricks of the trade? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I'll specifically try to learn something so I can teach people about it. But a lot of times I try to just do it for fun once or twice, or I know I have a shoot coming up where I need to be able to do that. And so that's what will push me to learn something new. I also just like learning in general, even if it's something I don't really need to know how to do yet. I'll still watch tutorials about it, try it out. And maybe it doesn't go into a published video, but maybe it eventually it does. And then it's just another tool on my tool belt to be able to do that. And do you ever feel pulled between the different parts of production, like the pre-production and the post and the principal video recording? Like, do you feel like you would rather focus your skills and your career path into the one of the three or as an online video producer, do you see that all of it is all one part of the whole and you really regard and value and you're passionate about all of the above. I think that it's very important for you to be involved in every step of the process, at least for a while, because if you're not involved in certain pieces of it, then you don't know how they all help each other. So for example, if you just edited videos for people and you didn't know how to film videos, you might have a very different view on what you're getting from people. Because if the other side of the coin is you only film videos and you never have to edit them, that means you never have to see what kind of mistakes you're making and how it plays into the overall video that needs to be crafted. Mm. And so I think it's very important to know that entire process and to be able to do every piece of it. But there are certainly pieces that I enjoy more than others. So I really enjoy camera operation and doing director of photography type stuff. And I do like editing sometimes, but there's certain pieces of editing that does get tedious. Yeah. And I don't really care for having to sit and upload the video and put the tags on it and write the description and things like that or choose choose annotations to like put in and the little more tedious pieces that are that last 5% of a video. But I think that knowing what the overall process is really helps you determine 
every step along the way of a video what needs to be done. So if you know that eventually there's going to be an annotation or a description below this video, then you can work that into the video, into the script, and have you actually say that in the video. And there's just so many different moving pieces along the process of video. I think it's important to know all of them. And eventually, maybe you grow a team or you have contractors that can work with you and do other parts. But really, you're going to be the person when you're first starting that's going to have to carry the baton from the the beginning to the finish line. Hmm. I have two questions left for you. One of them here uh, related to your process. Is there any particular part of your work that you prefer to keep analog versus digital? You know, so much of your job requires that you're on a computer or you're on a camera or you're on a microphone. But is there anything you enjoy doing that gets you away from the machines? I do prefer to read in analog. So lately I've been trying to read books and magazines, for lack of a better word, um, more like trade magazines, as opposed to blog posts in my Insta paper or consuming only podcasts or video because I can do that quickly or while I'm out and about for, for a podcast. That would, that would be one thing I'm trying to read more that's kind of analog, as well as there are certain stages when we get into production where we have to take notes during a shoot or we're planning out what we're going to do that day, or we just have to visualize something like storyboarding or scripting something, and we'll we'll do that analog as much as possible because it, it is helpful to give yourself a break from the digital whenever you can, uh, even though I'm basically connected to a device all the time when I'm working. So those have been the main things. And one last thing is journaling a little bit by hand has been helpful too. I do like to write in day one when I want to write for 40, 45 minutes, but having a, a handwritten journal where I can do shorter entries has been uh, really helpful for me too. So do you intend to keep a hold of the physical journal books over the years as much as you would day one? I've, I've often debated this, like I would love to keep a journal and so I've been using day one. It's a great app. There'll be a link in our show notes. And I wonder from time to time, am I going to have this in 10 or 15, 20 years? Will it even matter to me? I would like to think it would matter to me and that I'd still be able to get to those past journal entries. It'd be simpler if it were analog. And so I feel torn between the two uh, mediums because the one I know I could keep safe and secure up on the shelf and any time I could pick up and read it. But then just like you pointed out, it'd be much easier to write for a long spell into the program. I go back and forth. I, this is for journals and for things like books. Uh, I love to hold a physical book and read it but i also like to travel and not carry multiple books so i like having a kindle or using my phone or ipad to read so i think it can go either way depending on what you want it for i think that having physical journals in your life and you keep them your entire life isn't that big of a possession footprint really Whereas having a lot of books might be, having physical journals might not be that much. But I do like the idea of having them backed up somewhere and whether or not day one or Dropbox are going to exist in 50 years when you want to go read them then, that's another question. But as things change, I'm sure you could go through and update your journal or whatever your, your, your Evernote, whatever those things are. And if they go defunct, you're going to find a way to update them to the next next version or the next iteration. So I think it's 
it's it really goes both ways because there are some things I like digital and some things I like analog, and it's just uh, I don't know. It's it depends on the on the day or the task that it is of which I choose. Right, right. Because the thing I'm debating now uh, in relation to what is physical versus digital is all my video media content. I have all of these Blu-rays and DVDs. And as we get steeper into cloud computing, I I feel like it's so far more convenient to keep everything up in cyberspace. I'd rather just have all of my movies there. Do you feel torn between the two, your, your collections of video at home on the shelf versus what you have on the computer? What do you see as the future? I, I think they're both going to last for a while yet. Physical video media isn't going to go anywhere because there are going to be plenty of people who would rather have a physical copy. Yeah, I think my biggest wish is that anything I owned already that I've already purchased, whether that was a DVD or a Blu-ray or digital, that I got it in digital just just for the convenience and knowing that i had the best copy whenever it was updated the fact that you have to buy it again kind of thing is is i think the most frustrating because i am a stickler for video and audio quality and so if i really want to watch something and i want it to be in the highest quality then i'll rent a blu-ray or i'll purchase a blu-ray but if it's just something i'm consuming on the spur of the moment, and maybe I only will consume it once, a la Netflix or HBO Go, then a little downgrade in quality to have it streamed isn't that big of a deal to me. Mm. But I think the biggest thing is I have a movie collection that I've downsized, so I don't have all the cases. It's just in one of those binders. But I would love to have access to that anytime I'm about to take a flight and I could just quickly say, I want this on my iPad, start downloading it so it's ready for this flight that I'm about to take. And I know there are ways that you could rip them and do media management and use, I'm trying to think of what people use, uh, Plex to like play it onto whatever device you have in your home. And I, I know how to do that stuff. I used to do it when I used to tinker on my PC and <laughs> I would back up all my DVDs so I could watch them wherever. But I just kind of wish that since I already paid for it, it would be easier. Right. Interesting. How about you, Josh? What were you using these days? Which do you favor? Yeah, I've got a big box of old DVDs and things like that. And I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as, as you, Joe. I mean, the, the convenience and, and whatnot of streaming, it just, you know, I've got an old hard drive also of, of ripped ripped DVDs that uh, uh, borrowed, you know what I mean? And it's like, do I even really need these hundred movies when, you know, there's just plenty of uh, movies out there on Netflix and different places like that? Well, it's definitely making me reprocess my thinking about how uh, I want to distribute. Well, it's not like I can pick up the latest copy of Mission Impossible and share it with my friends if they want to borrow it and take it home. If I have a digital copy, it's it's mine alone and they have to watch it here or they have to buy their own. So there's some trade-offs there. Well, Caleb, thank you very much. Great discussion. Love to get to know you a little bit better. Where would you like people to find you online? Uh, the best place to go is DIYVideoGuy.com or search DIY Video Guy on YouTube or Twitter or iTunes, and uh, you can find me that way too. Okay. Well, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this will make the end of Tectonic 10.8. We're so glad that all the rest of you could join us. If you don't already have them, you can find the show notes with links at tectonic.fm slash 10-8. And if you're looking for us on Twitter, I'm underscore Joe Darnell. 
My co-host is Joshua Pfeiffer, and the show is Tectonic FM. If you'd like to send us your uh, messages off the grid, then send them via email to joe at tectonic.fm. If you're looking for ways to subscribe, Tectonic is available through all the podcast apps out there like Pocket Casts, Overcast, and iTunes for the Mac, and Apple's very own Podcasts for iOS. I'm Joe Darnell. Thanks a bunch for listening to the Tectonic Podcast. Podcast.